Welcome to Clin Farm Pod. I'm Elena Webster, Deputy Managing Editor for the ASCPT Family of Journals. My guests today are Dr. Jacob Brown, Assistant Professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Minnesota College of Pharmacy, and Dr. Tiana Luzak, who just completed her postdoc at University of Minnesota and is currently at Fairview Health System. They will be speaking with Dr. Erica Woodall, Professor at the University of Montana and an Associate Editor for Clinical and Translational Science. Jacob and Tiana, thanks for joining us. And Erica, it's a pleasure to have you back. Tiana and Jacob, you've recently published a paper in Clinical and Translational Science titled Applying an Equity Lens to Pharmacogenetic Research and Translation to Underrepresented Populations. We're looking forward to discussing this important work today. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Erica. Hi, Tiana and Jacob. Thank you for joining us today. Can you talk a little bit about what makes addressing equity so important for pharmacogenetics research today? Thanks for having us too. Um, being able to address equity now at the relative beginning of clinical implementation for PGX allows us to address the disparity gap in healthcare. We have the opportunity to implement this equally for our patients rather than implementing in a certain setting or a patient population and then backtracking and trying to fix that gap that was created. And of course, clinical implementation starts with research, so we can't implement with equity in mind if we don't know how to, how to apply it in different settings. Currently, our PGX knowledge is heavily biased by European genetics, and by using what we've learned from those European populations in a non-European population in both the research and clinical setting could be detrimental. Yeah, and I would just add that I think uh, one thing that um, is important to keep in mind in regards to pharmacogenetic research is in terms of existing health disparities, not having uh, pharmacogenetics, especially to Tiana's point, in the early stages of its implementation, worsening uh, those existing health disparities. Uh, thank you. I thought it was really great that you included equity in the title and that the focus was so much on that. I think it's really important for both researchers and clinicians to have that in mind. So thank you. Could you define for us underrepresentation and what makes it so difficult to quantify? So the NIH defines underrepresentation as five groups, um, Blacks, African-Americans, Asians, Hispanics, Latinos, American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiians or other Pacific Islanders. Um, underrepresentation, I think about, I think about table one in a paper, any paper um, that lists the demographics and characteristics of our patients. Anything that you can find there that's in the minority or maybe not even listed at all to me is an underrepresented group. For a paper, we focus mostly on genetic ancestry, but underrepresentation goes beyond genetics and includes our gender identities, members of the LGBTQ plus community, those with disabilities, and other really important factors like our social determinants of health. And this is what makes it so difficult to quantify because as humans, we are so much more than a single category. We have complex interactions with our cultures, with our environment, and of course our genetics. And that's what makes us unique. And in some ways, a person could be considered underrepresented. And then in other categories, they could not. I think when, uh, when people think of underrepresentation a lot, our minds always sort of go directly towards race, uh, which is more of a social construct, which is why we specifically a list in here that we refer to, um, we use the term genetic ancestry to try and be a more accurate descriptor of that and not necessarily just the broader NIH categories, um, which is one of the challenges obviously that uh, comes into play with some of this research. Thank you both. Really good point that underrepresentation comes in, in many different forms. So could you talk a little bit about the challenges of creating collaborative community engaged environments that might address some of this underrepresentation for some groups? 
To me, as an early career researcher, I think one of the most like daunting challenges is really just putting the effort in creating um, the resources to establish a relationship with a community um, that's built on a foundation of bi-directional understanding and trust. So that is it's a sustainable relationship. Um, I think a big challenge is establishing that relationship with the community so that there's mutual respect and trust. And then another big challenge is to find the common ground on what the community wants from the research project, as well as reconciling it with what the researcher wants from the same project as well. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of it too is, uh, to Tiana's point, is relationship building and uh, having a physical presence or just being present within that community. And I think if you're unable to do that, it makes these type of collaborative research projects really difficult if you don't have somewhat of a presence there or a connection um, and you're not able to develop that trust uh, with some of those communities, which is a big reason why in our paper that we uh, have a bit of a focus on community-based participatory research and sort of describe what that process looks like and talk about essentially trying to conduct firm cogenetic research um, within the context of CBPR. Great. Yeah, I, I can speak with my research at the University of Montana, working with indigenous communities that, you know, all of the work really what relied on the trust that was built. And certainly there's a lot of reasons for communities who are underrepresented, why they have been mistrustful of research and medicine in general. And building that community cap capacity is something I think maybe as researchers we aren't used to doing and maybe not super comfortable with doing, but really important to moving the needle on, on equity. Yeah, and I, I will say it's, it's one thing that, that you don't necessarily get a lot of training in in most fellowship or residency programs unless you are specifically working in a clinic that serves those type of populations or in a region or an area where you do get some of that face-to-face. -face. And, uh, and we, we focus a lot on the more lab-based sciences and clinical application of things. And this is, I think, one area that we probably all could stand to, to have a little humility and learn a bit more of. Yeah, for sure. One thing I, I noticed in my own work and I um, you had in your paper as well, where scientists and researchers really need to be uh, better at listening, you know, and it was kind of hard to, to think about that, but listen more than and listen what the community needs are and what the community desires are for research. Yeah, and it's it's almost a like a change of approach. Um, and uh, instead of you know you as the researcher coming in and telling an individual or a group you know what they should be doing, and instead you know really flipping that around in that CDPR model and asking them what's important to them and uh, where is some of the overlap and uh, what are some of the skills that we can come to the table with and uh, help provide to help essentially address the issues that are important to them instead of you know really just trying to go in and say this is something you should be doing really just come at it from more of that cbpr absolutely yeah what are the what are the pressing needs from the community and how can research address that instead of the other way around thank you anything else to add tiana no i think you guys nailed that one what makes for a well-conducted and or inclusive pharmacogenetic study for underrepresented populations I think a PGX study that's inclusive of underrepresented populations should be done within those populations. Um, we shouldn't just be having them as uh, categories, as subgroups within our, our tables so that they and their results can get kind of washed out in big studies that are still have majority European-based populations. So a study needs to be done within those underrepresented populations to use genetic ancestry to define that population and should have the resources to sequence genes of interest that they're looking for. It's great to use a predefined 
defined panel in a study, they're convenient, but then we don't know what we're missing. How many of our, our patients or participants could be phenotypically misclassified because the panel didn't, didn't detect an important variant within that community or that population. Um, so again, it's really important to make sure you know what resources are available, how you're going to use them. And it's super important to be done in a collaborative way with the community as we were just talking about the CBPR approach. Yeah, and I, the, the two examples that we focused on, one, uh, Eric, you, you previously alluded to is one of the examples that uh, your group has done um, in Montana, and then the other being a, a group in South Africa as well. And I know for at least you guys, and you guys have published separately on some of these methods of that approach of how you guys really went to that community, um, asked them what was important, that really helped form the basis of studying anti-cancer medications and sort of definitely helps describe how you guys came to really focus on like CYP2D6 and 384 and 385. And yeah, to Tiana's point, a lot of this does somewhat come down to resources of having the ability to do sequencing where you can not only identify, you know, at a higher level in a panel genetic test, the frequency of some of those variants or alleles, but then also identify some new variants, and then potentially take that one step further and try to describe what the functional consequences of those variants. Yeah, we don't know what we're missing unless we're looking for it. And I think, you know, one of the, the challenges that we were trying to address with some of our work was these panels that you, you mentioned, Tiana, you know, how do we know that they'll even be useful when we get to clinical implementation for populations for which there's, you know, really limited data or sometimes no data? Yeah, and I, I think we might touch on this later, but in terms of gaining more knowledge and more um, information on variants that are unique to specific patient populations, I think that will the more of that knowledge that we have and uh, the more that it's described, I think will give the frontline providers more confidence in those panels as opposed to you know, if they're seeing somebody that, you know, has a ethnic background that is not typically included in some of these larger GWA studies or pharmacogenetic studies, giving, giving those clinicians and really the people that are applying those results confidence that the result that they have, they can be reasonably confident that it's an accurate genotype as opposed to, you know, well, this research hasn't really been done in this, this specific uh, patient population. So can I really trust these results? Yeah, I think that confidence from our practitioners comes twofold, not only seeing that, that I can apply this to my underrepresented populations, but also if we're including these more diverse communities in our studies, again, it goes back to you're not going to find something unless you're looking for it. And how many of our clinical outcomes in our previous studies are impacted by variants that we don't we didn't know about and maybe could have swayed our outcomes one way or another, either positively or negatively. So knowing those and having those diverse uh, populations represented could positively impact our clinical outcomes, which then increases that confidence in applying and using PGX in that clinical setting too. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. So we, we've talked a little bit about this issue already, but aside from the fact that it's without question really the right thing to do to make sure that we have more equity and access to pharmacogenetics, is there a case to be made that representativeness in pharmacogenetics benefits the broader population too? Yeah, I mean, to me, the the not worsening current health disparities is a really big piece of it, and maybe the biggest. I think just a one of, one specific example of how having more representativeness in either panels or just testing at more in general is the decision against Hawaii, where there's a fairly large lawsuit of several hundred million dollars, and you know who knows what that will look like at the end of the day with the courts and whatnot. But I believe it was the Attorney General of Hawaii. Uh, bring a lawsuit for to that uh, drug company for clopidogrel, 
alleging that they knew that there were CYP2C19 um, variants of a higher frequency within you know, native Hawaiians. I think as pharmacogenetics becomes more mainstream and people recognize it a bit more, we may start seeing more of these type of things or seeing insurance providers start to cover things where historically they typically have not to avoid situations like this, where you have a medication that's commonly prescribed and there's some level of knowledge that it may not work as well in a specific patient population that uh, could certainly help providers. And then, yeah, at the end of the day, improve overall patient outcomes and um, overall, you know, patient, uh, patient health. Yeah, I think that was a really interesting case too with the state of Hawaii. And it'll be interesting to see how that case kind of affects the bottom line of drug companies and or, you know, insurance companies. And if that starts to change um, reimbursement and access to pharmacogenetic testing too. Yeah. And I, I think pharmacogenetics is just at this kind of interesting intersection where there are so many direct to consumer testing. And so essentially anybody of, with the resources to be able to pay for some of that test can uh, go through some of those direct to consumer testing and get some of those results. And, you know, in some ways it almost feels like we're putting the cart ahead of the horse where there may be opportunities for some specific research, but then it gets into a whole host of other issues where of uh, who owns that data. And I know there's certain, certain things that you sign over once you agree to some of that testing. But I think those are interesting places that we find ourselves today, just with with it being so widely available and becoming a bit more mainstream. For sure. And then those patients bring that directed consumer testing to their provider who (laughs) doesn't know exactly how to use it and what to do with it. Why do you think current pharmacogenetic studies lack diverse representation? Are there ethical, historical, or sociologic factors maybe contributing? Yes, I'd say D, all of the above to to those uh, questions. There are a lot of factors that impact diversity in PGX studies. The most common that we see cited are participant mistrust with researchers, um, and that can be across the board, not just in genetic studies. Lack of comfort with the research process, lack of information, time and resource constraints, like getting to and from a research office, childcare during research appointments, things like that. As a research community, we've used the reason of mistrust due to historical mistreatment of genetic data almost as a crutch. It's a very legitimate reason for mistrust within the research community, but it shouldn't predispose us from moving forward with our underrepresented communities, building that bi-directional trust, assessing and addressing social determinants of health and finding those common goals for research studies. And then for those other ones that we listed, the kind of lack of information, lack of knowledge about what the research process is, time and resource constraints. There are multiple papers out there now that are showing that if you're addressing these concerns with your participants or potential participants, that they're more likely to go forward with the research process and that our mistrust is actually cited less commonly than these other kind of lack of information, lack of knowledge around it and time and um, logistical issues. Yeah, and I to add on what Tiana said there, one of our colleagues, Alihe Akoro, who's an associate professor in our department, was kind enough to review our article. And she is an expert in community-based participatory research and social determinants of health, and did a nice job of reminding us that pharmacogenetic research is not necessarily always at the forefront of uh, priorities for individuals or some of these groups, and uh, like housing or access to food and or some of those more basic necessities are potentially issues that could just outweigh the, not even the willingness to, to participate in some of this research, but just the capacity. Uh, and so I know for me, that was an extremely helpful outside review, living inside of a sort of a pharmacogenetic bubble that this is not, um, not necessarily the number one priority for everyone. For sure. 
yeah, I mean, obviously this is our interest in pharmacogenomics, but certainly for communities, there's, you know, pharmacogenetics might be nice, but there's other things that are a lot more pressing. And I think, you know, where you both live in Northern, Northern Minnesota and where I live in Montana and many other parts of the country, people have to drive long distances to reach even just primary care. And so pharmacogenetics is really kind of off their radar, both from a research capacity as well as how this could benefit their, their healthcare delivery. I think these are challenges, you know, that are that are harder to address than just saying there's mistrust. It's it's lack of infrastructure and lack of knowledge about research. So again, kind of getting back to what we talked about at the beginning, how do researchers really take that time to learn what the community needs and concerns are? Um, what efforts are being made now to address inequity in pharmacogenetics? There are groups working to increase diversity in genetic research, both on that community level, such as our American Indian, Alaskan Native communities and Hmong communities, but also on a larger scale to create population-specific genotyping arrays like the Multi-Ethnic Global Array or the H3 Africa Consortium as well. There are a lot of reviews addressing inequity in GWAS and our PGX studies, and so really the next step is to make that effort um, and start doing the studies in our underrepresented communities. And I, I think uh, a couple of other the projects that we have cited in there, like the Thousand Genome Project, as well as all of us that are hopefully will help to bring some of this knowledge to light. I will say also outside of the pharmacogenetics um, bubble that at least within specific universities or institutions, there is a bit more of an approach on community uh, participatory research and building some of that trust. And maybe it's not specific to pharmacogenetics, but I think pharmacogenetics could be an aspect of some of those, uh, those type of funding models. Great, thank you. So where do we go next? Where are the gaps? Any suggestions from you both um, for researchers as well as institutions on how we can do a better job in being inclusive? Yeah, I think now that we know that those gaps are really coming from a highly biased European influence on our genetic studies, uh, I think individual researchers in this PGX space could consider how best to establish a collaborative research relationship with our underrepresented communities. And how can they form that relationship with longevity and sustainability in mind? And maybe that means instead of being an individual researcher, it's an institution that establishes that relationship to help address other non-PGX concerns. Like to Jacob's point, the community might not even have PGX on their radar yet. So maybe that collaborative research relationship doesn't start with an individual researcher, but instead it starts with an institution that can provide needs or resources to what the community is looking for. Um, resources also should be considered. Um, we talked a little bit about the difference in using a commercial PGX panel versus sequencing and not finding what you're not looking for. And so partnering with other institutions or researchers um, or communities that have the resources to be able to sequence, I think, is also key here, too. You know, bringing this more sort of the forefront, I mean, it's it's great that Clinical and Translational Science is publishing a mini review on this specific focus area. And also acknowledging that, you know, this work is not going to happen overnight and research done well is relatively slow and can take a bit of time. And especially when you're taking the time to build that trust and develop some of those, uh, those other infrastructure needs before you can really start to engage in more of a, a specific pharmacogenetic type project. I think just acknowledging that the more people that get into this, the, the more we'll eventually know. And then to Tiana's point, having the awareness to also bring sequencing into it so you can identify some of those variants that have yet to be described. And really, again, just to help try to describe some of the variability that we, uh, we observe within either medication response or plasma levels. Great, thank you both. Well, thank you so much for taking your time today. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share before we close? 
I just wanted to I just want to say thanks to uh, Clinical Translational Science for the opportunity to, to write this review. Um, I know this was big learning experience for uh, myself, certainly, and I think Tiana as well. Um, I also wanted to acknowledge our co-author, David Stenium, who was not able to be here, but certainly contributed to our, our manuscript. And then also, again, Olihe Koro for her uh, outside review of uh, our manuscript. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate uh, you both writing this, um, this review, and I think it's really important to have this discussion within the field of pharmacogenomics and clinical pharmacology. Thank you, Tiana, Jacob, and Erica. I appreciate you all taking the time to join us today. You can find Jacob and Tiana's published paper on CTS's homepage in the Wiley Online Journal, and we'll also be posting a link in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening to ClinFarm Pod. Be sure to check out past episodes while you're here, and remember to visit ASCBT.org for updated podcast releases, our latest webinars, and the most recent issues of all three journals.